This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of these challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Peter Harris, Chairman of Australia's Productivity Commission. Peter says data is like a diamond and we should be polishing all of its facets. Competition is a means to an end for greater economic welfare for Australians. Privacy, got a strong social policy objective. I like to think of these two for data as being different facets of the diamond. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. In previous episodes on competition law, we've heard a lot about whether and how privacy should be included in the competition rulebook. Well, in this episode, we're going to hear from a leader in public policy who says there's another way of looking at these things. Peter Harris is the chairman of the Productivity Commission in Australia. The commission is an independent statutory agency that undertakes research and analysis and makes recommendations to government for policy reform. It's a highly respected, highly influential body and one to which Australians owe much of the economic prosperity that they've enjoyed over the last 20 or so years. Now, in 2017, the Commission delivered a weighty report to government about how to get the most out of data in a digital economy, and the government has wasted no time in acting on it. One of the most significant recommendations by the Commission is the introduction of a comprehensive consumer right to data. In a fascinating discussion, Peter tells us why there should be such a right, how it will work, how it differs from privacy reforms in Europe, and why it's a model other countries should consider following. But before we got into the detail, I asked him to share with us his personal insights into the making of public policy. Peter, What would you say makes for sound and sustainable public policy in an era of unprecedented change and uncertainty? The first thing people should do is the thing they avoid almost comprehensively today, and that is identify the public interest in whatever you're going to have a go at. Because the public interest is such an ill-defined concept, so hard to work out, there are no good rules. Most academics who write on the subject write things that are not at all relevant to people sitting at a desk in a bureaucracy trying to identify, based on what the government of the day says it wants to do, what is the public interest. I think you also have said in a previous speech that there's an imperative to align public interests with private interests and incentives especially. That's right. What did you mean by that? We have a famous past treasurer, the finance minister in Australia, Paul Kidding, who said in public policy, back self-interest, you can be sure it's trying, which is a horse racing analogy. And that's true. If we can align the public interest, the purpose for which we're getting involved in ensuring this service is supplied to people or this uh, arrangement is made that advantage, if we can align that with the private interest, then we can be pretty sure that that's going to be a sustainable piece of policy over time. Why? Because the private interest will ensure that the public interest is also being served. Now, sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes they are clearly in conflict, but not by any means all the time. And so that alignment, that's the sort of second step you take. You ask, having identified the public interest, what the private interests here? What are these people involved trying to get for themselves out of this? 
And can we get some consistency of behaviour between delivering both those interests? And then we have, I separate the political interests from the private interests. So then there's the third level. What is the government, the entity that's about to intervene or is proposing to intervene, what is it attempting to achieve? And would that not be aligned with the public interest? Or Quite often, absolutely not. The political interest is in getting re-elected, <laughs> brutal and pragmatic as that is, and perhaps making the other lot, the alternative party of government, look worse than they are. We call it wedging in Australian politics here. So that's often their political objective. Now, if that is their political objective... We don't even bother serving it. We don't even consider that to be relevant. We need to know it, but then we'll abandon it. Uh, That's one of the values that the Productivity Commission has as a completely independent institution doing its advising openly and publicly. We are able to do that. But there are other occasions where the political interest is really a question of identifying from that political party's perspective the sorts of people that they would favour. So we have a political party that might favour small business. We have a political party that might favour union interests. Sometimes the union interests or the small business interests are aligned with both the public interest. And if they aren't, sometimes we can make sure that the policy recommended does actually attempt to at least not act inconsistently with them. And in that sense, you can get a deliverable piece of public policy. Where we can't, as I said, we abandon any great consideration of that but at times it does happen and that makes for a better policy design because it's sustainable over time. I want to ask you specifically about the inquiry that the Productivity Commission conducted over a couple of years into the availability and use of data in a digital economy. I note that the starting point as reflected in the terms of reference for this inquiry were quite different to the starting point on the subject in other inquiries around the world in that it was an inquiry about boosting innovation and competition as opposed to data protection and privacy. So potentially there, two quite different and possibly conflicting public interests. Why was the starting point for the inquiry that your commission did innovation and competition as distinct from data protection and privacy? The government asked us to focus on competition. Agreed entirely, there are multiple public interests here. Competition is a means to an end for greater economic welfare for Australians. Privacy, got strong social policy objective. I like to think of these two for data as being different facets of the diamond. So you can polish the privacy facet, you can polish the competition facet, there are other facets of the diamond you'd call data which can be polished either by public interest or by private interest activity. But overall, you've got to view data in the future as being this diamond, this fantastic asset, because increasingly we can see it's the biggest driver of innovation, particularly in the services sector, in manufacturing too, but in the services sector around the world. What's fascinating is that you've conceded data or data, as many of our listeners would call it, a dull topic to many, and yet the report by this inquiry you've said is the most highly accessed report produced by the Commission to date. What do you credit that level of interest by the public? This is a sort of anecdotal experience, but my children and their friends who are in their late 20s and 30s consider this to be their stuff. Almost like, you mean we don't control this stuff ourselves? And I say to them, well, have you tried? And the answer is, well, no, but of course it's always going to be there for us. And and my answer to that is, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. And you've also said that uh, this report had a high impact in political circles. So perhaps 
just touching on the political interest, why do you think it had such resonance in the halls of political power? We know that the ability for consumers to effectively order a collector of data to send their data collected on an individual or otherwise held in an individual's name onto a third party safely, that that ability will change things in the health sector, change things in the telecommunications sector, change things in the energy sector, all of which today in Australia are searching for mechanisms to offer a catalyst effect, a change in favour of user choice. So before we get into some of the actual recommendations of the report, you've referred to what governments around the world have been thinking about and doing in this space. And being a research-based institution, I'm no doubt that the Commission looked around the world for templates or models on which it might be able to draw for inspiration. Did you find any? Yeah, that's our standard modus operandi is to look at other countries and see what they are doing first better than us. And then if there is something novel, we also go through the academic literature to the extent it's readily available and the commentary that occurs through reputable sites from the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the OECD. And look, we found very little. Obviously, the European consideration of developing the GDPR was something we went through. We like to know what's happening in North America because it's a hotbed of innovation in many areas. But there were very few templates in this area of how we can effectively make the consumer a better consumer by giving them access to the data that is already being collected. Moreover, given that data is a digital form, multiple parties can utilise it without preventing any other party from getting the advantage as well. So it's got real positive asset benefits and we wanted to make them available to consumers. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the mechanics of what's being proposed here by way of a new comprehensive consumer right to data. I might just let our listeners know first off that this report contained very significant recommendations relating to public sector data. But for our purposes, we're going to talk about it predominantly in the context of the private sector. Now, let's understand first just what kind of data are we talking about here? What is consumer data and how might it differ from the concept of personal information to which privacy laws apply? Right. We wanted to go beyond personal information, but we do try and capture personal information in our definition of consumer data. Where we wanted to go beyond it was to include, for example, information uh, developed about you by efforts on behalf of the collector, but that remains identifiable with you in the collection held by that collector. And moreover, we would add to it information that even if it wasn't held in your name, was nevertheless identifiable with you, for example, in the case of electricity provision from a smart meter, which is held against a 12-digit number rather than held against your name. And that's the information that could be passed on to a competitor in order to get a competitive offer. And in the alternative, because you're telling your supplier to pass that information on, you may get a more competitive offer from them too, because they'll become conscious through that action that you're possibly dissatisfied with their current offer. Let's try and understand then what rights do Australian consumers currently have over that type of data? We know that just sticking with that smart meter descriptor, you pay for your smart meter and your electricity bill, but you don't own the data. The energy company owns the data. So we would invert that. We would say 
not so much about a question of ownership anymore. We're not going to dispute ownership. We would say you jointly control that data with the collector. And the concept of joint control, we went along with that because we were particularly concerned if we went to data ownership that we would start creating property rights and then property rights implies saleability, whereas, in fact, we wanted an inalienable right here. We wanted a right that by ticking a box in the terms and conditions or by being paid a dollar at a time and you didn't know whether the data was worth anything or not, you lost control of it. We don't want you to lose control of it ever. We want data to be collected and made available readily at your discretion now and in the future. But to be clear, what's being proposed is not an exclusive right of control. It's a joint control both by the data holder and the data subject. Is that right? That's absolutely right. We don't want to exclude the collector from being able to benefit from their collecting activities. We just want you sharing in the potential options over that data in the future. Okay, so let's understand then what that right actually might entail. Well, currently under our privacy arrangements, you're able to see the data that's held upon you, you're able to correct it if it's wrong, but you're not able to utilise it for another subsequent purpose. For example, this one we're emphasising, which is the ability to order your collector send a copy of your data to another party in order that you might receive a more competitive offer. So it certainly extends that catalyst, but it also changes another area versus Australian law, and that's consent to what a third party can do with your data. And so the government is going to struggle with this, and there are better options perhaps being developed around the world at the moment than we were able to consider at the time we put ours together. But one of the clear principles in our stated proposition is just as you would with any other asset where you share control with another party, If that asset is to be encumbered or otherwise made available to a fourth party, you should know about that. So you should have the right to consent not just to the original collection of the data but to be aware of what is happening with your data and to be able to say at some point, I don't want that to happen. So in the context of social network or search engine, it would be that you could say, I don't want my data disclosed to advertisers. Yep. Is that one example? That's an example. It's not what we've recommended specifically because we just said this question should be settled by examination of the circumstances that apply in each industry where the right, having been established in principle, is then triggered in practice. And so the way we've recommended this be set up is The government is going to start out and has currently gone a fair way in the banking area with establishing the right. So that's been triggered. It says it will trigger next in telecommunications, in your mobile and fixed line services, and in electricity. It's considering doing the same in health with health data. So each of the data propositions, what qualifies as consumer data and how it might be safely transferred from one party to another will be different between each of those entities. For instance, for example, the smart meter data in energy is going to be quite different to the data that's held upon you in banking. But in each case, the nature of the data that qualifies as consumer data must be sufficient to enable you to achieve the public policy outcome which in the case of banking would be a more competitive offer. In the case of health might be to assure you that your hospital has access to your GP's records. And your recommendations relating to the right to transfer also go to the form in which data is available for that transfer, which I understand is 
perhaps an extension on what's being done under the GDPR. Yeah, that's right. We looked at the GDPR and it wasn't complete then, but it was substantially complete. And the model that they had in mind was there are multiple forms in which you could hold digital data and it allowed a firm to choose the form which was most convenient to it. We don't want that because that could be an impediment to its use in the competition sense could actually be chosen to be held in a form which was not communicable across the entire industry. So when the consumer right that we're proposing is triggered for a particular industry, one of the standards that would be imposed and would have to be agreed by our national competition regulator, the ACCC, is what standard is the data going to be held in that would enable its transfer to create this catalytic effect of data triggering a more competitive response on behalf of the consumer. And again, that may differ from different industries. Different industries will have different ways of holding data. So we acknowledge that the GDPR, I think, was trying to consider that there were these different systems. But for the purposes of our consumer data right, there's going to have to be agreement within that industry on how data is held and how it's to be transferred safely. And our Australian Competition and Consumer Commission will be the ultimate arbiter about that standard. This again appears to me to highlight a potentially quite significant difference to the way in which Australia is going to approach this problem of data restriction and other places. You've referred to the GDPR. What's being proposed here, if I understand it correctly, Peter, is a comprehensive omnibus-style right in legislation that will apply across the economy, but it will only be, as you say, triggered or rolled out sector by sector or industry by industry, applying standards and definitions that are specific to that industry. Well, it's going to minimise the initial transitional and set-up costs for a start. So if we triggered this comprehensively across the economy, it would be expensive for some industries which have not readily adapted in Australia to digital handling of data. If consumers in those areas were expecting that information to be held available, they might be disappointed. So there are two costs there that we can avoid. Who are the consumers who are going to benefit from this right? Obviously, there are individuals like you and me. We wanted to extend the definition of consumer to cover small businesses, businesses with turnover up to $3 million a year, because substantially, 90-odd percent of those businesses are, in fact, one or two human beings. They're just, again, in a different form. Now, the government has gone beyond this in the banking sector and has said it'll apply to big businesses as well. That's interesting. We weren't confident that we could be sure of what the competition effects are when you tell a very large entity, well and truly probably able to look after itself, that it's got an additional right here over a supplier of services. We weren't as confident as the government, I think, is in the case of banking that that will work. But we'll certainly be finding out pretty shortly when that starts up in, the, I think, the middle of next year. So we've identified this right as having several facets. We've talked about access to data, requests for correction. Importantly, as you've said, transfer to an alternative service provider. And you mentioned also disclosure, at least, of trade to third parties. Why not a right to deletion, the so-called right to be forgotten? Yeah, this is an area where we've certainly departed from the thinking behind the GDPR. We consider data to be the kind of asset that, in fact, should be preserved in your interest. And so rather than, say, delete as soon as possible after you, the collector, have no use for it, we're thinking, but hang on, it's a shared right. 
What if the individual still has use for it? So again, you could see that if your financial services provider decided to delete all references to your information once you'd repaid the loan, all that record of whether or not you were a good customer and say, well, I no longer hold that, well, it would partially defeat the value that might have come from you then saying to another potential financial service provider, I have a great tracker record and here's the information it's held by my current data collector. Now, I know the GDPR allows people to make that choice to have their data deleted, but it equally has a principle behind it which says only hold the data for as long as you, the collector, need it. Now, we think differently about data here. We see it as an asset, and as long as it's a shared asset, I don't think the collector should have the unilateral ability to destroy it. So you started off explaining to us about why the premise for this inquiry was that data has strategic value and particularly for competition and innovation. Let's unpack that somewhat. How do you see greater access to and, as you put it, control over data by both consumers as data subjects and data collectors as good for competition? We certainly see it in that catalytic effect in areas where we are struggling to create otherwise substantially well-informed new entrants. We all know as economists that the very first thing we say for why consumers are weak in markets where they show little sign of being able to look after themselves is we say poor information provision. Then we say when a new entrant is allowed to start up in a particular sector that isn't characterised by strongly competitive circumstances and we say they're potentially going to struggle because they don't hold good information bases on the customers. Uh, So we're going to overcome that as well, we're going to potentially offer opportunity to innovators who do need access to data in order to start up and become effective competitors. We're going to offer them an ability to do that if they can convince individuals who then in future will hold shared control rights to the data sets held by the incumbent firms. We're going to offer those new entrants the chance to be able to get access to that that information quite quickly. But Peter, this is quite a big debate in the competition world at the moment. That is the extent to which data holdings are in fact a barrier to entry. And the argument against that goes something like this. Data is non-rivalrous. Just because one data holder, let's say Facebook, knows your date of birth, there's no stopping another data holder potential new entrant from finding that out too and making good use of it for innovative purposes. Did you run up against that argument? Not directly. I don't think too many people were concerned where data is readily available from multiple sources. But the point is that if you consider the sorts of industries where we're going to trigger this right in the first instance, they're all characterised by long-term incumbent firms, 20 or more years of experience across the market. And somebody who wants to start up quickly and needs to get critical mass or in the first year or two decline and die is going to find it very difficult to do that. This problem is no longer a problem under the the comprehensive consumer data right. Another argument that we've heard bandied about in this area is that if you impose a really far-reaching rights regime that it's likely to create regulatory barriers for new entrants and startups. And we've heard some say in the US that given that extraterritorial effect of the GDPR, there are now some US companies who are either deciding not to enter or to back off European markets because of the compliance costs associated with that 
regime. Is that something the Commission gave consideration to in this context? I understand, I've seen it since, that this has been promoted as an idea, but we didn't see privacy as being the sort of thing that was inconsistent with equally treating data as a tradable, shared right if you choose to do so. We agree that there's always going to be scope where these two regimes will rub up against each other, but they don't seem broadly inconsistent to me. They're just different ways in the end of trying to remind a consumer that this stuff is valuable, that you're perhaps giving it away very readily without future consideration for what you might want to do with it, and we're going to help you in the public interest, where here we identify that as being the competition that it might encourage and create on your behalf and therefore the better pricing will occur in a market where you're participating, we consider that's not in conflict with privacy. But we do know in Australia the privacy lobby, some parts of them, uh, they felt because we are an economic analytical organisation, we were you know, singularly ill-equipped to consider this issue. But I think that's rather one-dimensional intellectual thinking There's plenty of opportunity here, I think, for decent public policy development as long as it considers this ability for the collector to use the data as readily as the consumer. Much of the debate about competition and privacy in this area has been in the context of digital platforms, specifically those referred to by some as GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple, given their standing and power as data gatekeepers and intermediaries across swathes of the economy. Do you see the Australian consumer right to data as affecting their power in any way, given it's being rolled out on an industry or sector basis and really they cut across almost every sector of the economy? If the government does apply this as a comprehensive consumer right, and by comprehensive it means it covers the entire economy, but we will trigger it in areas where we see a need. Nevertheless, every collector is informed up front from the time that legislation passes that their data collection activities are potentially going to be subject to them being a shared right rather than a proprietary right. So everyone will be well informed. And then the question for Gaffer and the celebrated platforms is, well, at what point would we say in the public interest, we would need to trigger this right to ensure that consumers who are using that service are better able to ensure they get a competitive offer. And so that's the choice for those mega platforms. If Amazon's information collection in the retail space becomes utterly dominant and the only way if you choose to switch retailers that in the future you're going to get information about what's on the special this week emailed to you is by getting your Amazon data moved to another retailer, well, then you should be able to do that. So to me, it's an incentive. So go back to the Paul Keating statement, you know, back self-interest, you know it's trying. It's an incentive there, given the right is comprehensive, for those for whom it is yet to be declared as applying to their sector to say, hmm, maybe we'll just consider a little more carefully how the consumer can benefit from this as well as us. Indeed, although much of the talk and often coming from those big tech companies is about the costs associated with the imposition of rights of this kind, your report talks about the costs to business of not providing the right, of essentially taking consumers for granted in the access to and use of their data. What are the risks for businesses and perhaps for the market system overall of not providing this shared control? 
Yep. So here is probably the uh, unique aspect of the data report. Some of the things I've described probably novel, uh, certainly novel, not too many other countries are trying them yet. But uniquely, we spent chapters in this report on the question of trust. Because if the system that a consumer perceives is being set up to extract their information does not involve some form of shared confidence, which we call trust, then consumers start to offer inaccurate information. And as I've had want to say previously, you may think that Facebook doesn't know your birthday because you didn't tell them the correct birthday. Well, let's face it, I think they probably do, but it doesn't really matter that much. But making your doctor not knowing your correct birthday and sending the wrong information to hospital could be quite significant. So we don't want consumers to be in the position where their primary defence in data collection is to offer misleading information. It's going to be ineffective. It's going to be possibly dangerous in some circumstances. And then overall, it's going to be against the interests of us as an economy, each of us, members of an economy, getting these better service offers from these quite impressive and innovative uh, levels of investment that are going on in using data in the technology space. We're going to potentially undermine that benefit as well if we allow trust to be degenerating to the extent that people fail to have confidence in their data collectors. Indeed. And again, to distinguish as we have been all the way along between this reform and greater privacy regulation, it seems to me that regulating for privacy is about limiting threat, whereas this reform is about opening up opportunities, not just for consumers, but for businesses in the economy and for government. Is that a distinction that's relevant to the approach you took? Uh, Without a doubt, privacy legislation is defensive in nature. This is about enhancing the opportunity, but it's not just the opportunity for firms as collectors. It's the opportunity for consumers as individuals as well. But I would go further. I think if you're regulating in a form that attempts to deny an activity, you're just creating a perverse opportunity for somebody to find a way around that regulation. And governments are you know, generally pretty ordinary at anticipating the responses of markets. And so you create this sort of perversities of outcome. Whereas if you're running otherwise with regulation, that generally supports an opportunity, but shapes it so that it is focused not just in the private interest, but in the public interest as well, then you've got this chance of having it sustainably working over time and with far less incentive for people to end run it, to find a way around it, to be able to exploit the inadequacies of black letter law. And how important are institutions in this, Peter? Thinking obviously about the institutions of government and enforcement agencies, how much do we need to rely on having the right institutional framework underpinning the success of these types of reforms? We do need cooperation between the regulators. So although I've emphasised in this new comprehensive consumer right should be primarily a matter for management by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, we need to ensure that there is, as we term in the report, no wrong door for accessing solutions to problems that may emerge. It's not that there'll be no problems here. There's never been a a public policy intervention that is problem-free. It's just that some people may express their concern on a particular issue that's impacted them to the Privacy Commissioner. We need the Privacy Commissioner in Australia aligned with the ACCC, 
Competition Consumer Commission to ensure that they are together. And then the third entity that we need aligned effectively here are the public sector data collectors as a whole. So a whole separate part of our report, which we haven't talked about today, but is actually directed towards that. The better behaviour and management of data for access by researchers, and that includes innovators um, across the public sector. Peter, to round up its early days, it's only a year or so since the report was handed down and government is now in the business of implementing your recommendations, but you've already said that this report is just about the clearest success of your time to date in the job. Why would you say that? It's relatively rare for Productivity Commission reports to be implemented with alacrity. And as I've said previously, and you've just alluded to, this one has had a very, very speedy take-up by the federal government. The other thing that is not just the speed of take-up, because if we benchmarked ourselves solely on being a speedy take-up, we'd be all pretty depressed over at the Productivity Commission, but it's also the fact that the government has not cherry-picked this and said, well, let's just apply it to one sector and see how we go. The government has actually decided to go with a comprehensive right and it's triggering as we need it in particular areas, which I think, I mean, we recommended it, but it is the practical way of delivering something which is relatively novel. So for other countries that might consider going down the same path, that's an important consideration. You can pass the comprehensive right, but you can trigger it where you have the need for it as a facilitator of a more competitive kind of market. And it may not be the same markets as we need in Australia. So to sum up, it seems to me this is not just a competition reform. And as we've discussed, it's not really a privacy reform. How would you put it in a nutshell in capturing the likely impact of this reform on our economy and society? Data is increasingly driving most of the new product offerings across services industries, developed economies, services industries are 70%, 80% of activity, particularly for where we can see business-to-consumer kind of behaviour. Data is going to be the foundation of better product offerings in the future. So it is going to be, some people like to say, data is the, the new oil trying to convey its pervasiveness across an economy. It's going to be very significant And yet, if we wait too long to put some form of regulated direction in it, it will be driven solely by private interests. That's not to say that will be terrible in all circumstances, but it does set up this possibility of consumers feeling exploited and starting to, as it were, work against the interests of data collection. And so those two things, to me, it's pervasive nature in the future and the possibility that if badly handled, that pervasive asset could actually be less accurate than it ought to be, less capable of innovation than it should be for all our benefits. Those things say to me, this is a pretty significant piece of work and could become quite significant, not just in the Australian economy, but for a number of economies around the world. Shine bright like a diamond. Shine bright like a diamond. Shine bright like a diamond. Now there's one of my favourite Rihanna tracks. So Peter says, data is like a diamond, and to get the best shine out of it, we need to build trust in its collection and management. We especially need to make sure that consumers are sharing in its value. Now that doesn't necessarily mean paying us for our data, as some have suggested. 
but it does mean making sure consumers share in its control. The consumer data right is being rolled out in Australia's banking sector first, and telecoms and energy are next up. I'm sure I won't be the only one watching to see how it all goes. Next on Competition Law, we talk to someone outside of the antitrust world. Colin Bennett is a Canadian professor in political science specialising in privacy. He's going to help us pin down just what we mean when we talk about privacy and help us understand how its meaning has real-world implications for policy and law, including when it comes to competition. Until then, you can find links to the Productivity Commission's data report and government response in the show notes and other resources and links at competitionlaw.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a rating and review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. <laughs>